For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. Hey guys. It's a beautiful day here in Dumbo. This podcast is just rolling on with the smoothness. Wow, that's. I feel great about the way you described that. I was excited about uh, your guest this week. Oh, me too. I talked to Gabriel Sherman of New York Magazine. Uh, he's been in the news a lot, not just from his writing, but uh, from him getting uh, wrapped up in the story itself. Gabriel wrote a, a book about Roger Ailes of Fox News. He's covered the media for a long time for New York, for GQ, for a lot of other publications. And uh, as it happens... Uh, Roger Ailes is no longer at Fox News, where he previously was, uh, due to extensive sexual harassment accusations. And uh, in fact, actually, this has happened since uh, we taped this. Gabriel Sherman, there's some uh, reporting indicating that Ailes wanted to have him beat up or said, can't we just send some guys to beat him up when he was working on his book? I can't remember a story like this before where it's this big a story. And it seems like everyone else has just given up. Like, it's just Gabriel's story. He does. He. I mean. He. I mean. I, we talked about in the interview. He, he. He talked like six hundred people for the book. Roger Ailes not being one of those people <laughs> who refused to cooperate. So I think it would be hard to like uh, get past him on this. So I think uh, other people may be building on it, but he definitely owns the story. It's. It's interesting when you're covered so uh, doggedly by one person, where you're like someone like Roger Ailes is like, I would have gotten away for it if it wasn't that damn Sherman. Like <laughs> literally, like. There was only one person, like if one person would just give up, he would have like, there, there would have been no one looking kind of. Yeah, there was a quote this morning of Ailes, uh, I don't think it's been confirmed yet of you know rumors of him saying, can't we just rub him out? Talking about Gabe Sherman. So wow. we talked about that, about uh, what it's like to pursue uh, someone like that and then uh, have them pursue you. Uh, good times. Good times. Uh, how about Sponsors. I don't know, man. You tell me about sponsors. I'll tell you about a sponsor, MailChimp. They're simply the best way to send emails from your business, from your project, from your house, from your store. Regardless of where you're sending that email from, MailChimp has the tools to make it easy for you. Thank you, MailChimp. Here's Evan with Gabriel Sherman. All right. Uh, Gabe Sherman, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. Um, I am really excited to have you for many reasons, both to just talk about your work, but also because I feel very fortunate to be catching you in this moment, which seems like an extraordinary moment. Does it feel like an extraordinary moment for you? Um, yes and no. I mean, still in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, I just came uh, from spending all day reporting, so I sort of haven't had a second to stop and sort of process the coda of my book, which is, you know, Ailes's downfall. Um, but there are moments when it sort of sinks in. I'm like, this is insane that it's ended in a blaze of sexual harassment allegations. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say I can think of examples of where like reporting really landed in a huge way, but I'm not sure I can think of an example of like a bunch of reporting that was done that then like a year or two years later, like landed in this kind of way where suddenly it's like, oh, wait, who knows a lot about this? Oh, right. You know everything about this. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's satisfying. But also there is a certain part of me that was a little frustrated because when the Gretchen Carlson lawsuit broke at the beginning of July, in many ways, I wasn't surprised because my book had multiple examples of sexual harassment by Ailes over the years. And I knew that he was, you know, cross all these lines with women in the workplace. But when my book came out, it never really caught on. I mean, there was kind of bits and pieces of it reported. But it's, there's always, you know, with certain stories, a, a window when the public is ready to kind of pay attention. So, right. Yeah. yeah. OK, so let's not get too far ahead of people because uh, probably a lot of people know, but some might not. So. I want to start with the book. You wrote a book about Roger Ailes is the thing that people should know if they don't know that already. Roger Ailes has recently resigned slash was forced out of Fox News, which he basically invented and was the impresario of. And now there's just, uh, if you'll excuse the expression, crazy shit happening every day that's coming out in your reporting. And now other people are also reporting it. So, but I wanted to go back and figure out how you got all this stuff. Because I just finished reading the book. I hadn't read it previously. And it's also really fun to read it now. People should go buy it and read it right now. Because now it's like, it just feels like you're reading something that's like predicting the future. But I know that you were reporting on the media for a while. But tell me how you first got interested in Ailes. So, uh, so yes, I've covered the media business on and off for uh, more than 10 years now. And um the genesis of the book was that I had written a series of uh, New York Magazine uh, features uh, where I'm a staff writer for New York, and I had written pieces for the magazine about cable news, sort of around Ailes. I had written a piece about CNN. I would written a profile of Rupert Murdoch. I had done a big piece about Sarah Palin after the 08 campaign when she was reinventing herself as a right-wing celebrity. And were and, these things that you, did you come up with, it? were these ideas that yeah, you chased were, that were of your Yeah, interest? I mean, there was a mix between me and my editors, but we yeah. felt that these were sort of you know, the right stories to do. And eventually I sort of circled back to, to Fox because every story, whether it was CNN sort of failing to keep up with Fox or Sarah Palin going to Fox or Rupert Murdoch seeing his family split over being embarrassed about Fox, I felt that the real story, I was kind of, I wasn't going at the real story, which is just to do Fox itself. So um, I talked to my book agent, and she was saying that there had never been a real serious reported book about Fox News. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, there had been kind of partisan books and sort of quickie books, but there hadn't really been a deeply reported uh, history of the network. And so so we sold it to Random House, and um, I set out to start reporting the book. And very early on, the entire kind of scope of the book changed because it, um, it moved from being a history of Fox from 96 to the present to being a biography of Roger Ailes. And it changed because 
there was a quote that jumped out at me. Um, Ailes, in, in one interview years ago, said, I built this network from my life experience. And it just lodged in my head. And I said, well, if I'm going to understand Fox News and how it's divided and been such a polarizing influence on American politics, I have to understand where it comes from. And where it comes from is out of his mind and his biography, which goes back to middle of the last century in the industrial Midwest in Ohio and sort of everything we see now with Trump and this kind of white nationalist backlash is is part of that. It's this sense of that the culture is leaving people behind. And yeah. uh, and so that's that's why I made it more of a biography because you see so much of Ailes in the politics of Fox and that's, uh, that's how it happened. And when you decided to do that or when you started moving in that direction, did you think or assume that he would cooperate that with that? Or were you going in thinking, I'll, I'm going to do this whether or not he... I mean, even if it was a yeah. book about Fox, yeah. it seems like whether or not Ailes cooperated was going to be a big uh, yeah, question. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, almost every reporting assignment, I set out to do it either way. I mean, you always want access as a reporter, but you don't want to be limited by access because I find, especially now in the age where everyone is so flacked and there's so many layers of PR people around, you know, especially powerful people, you got to just be willing to do it, whether they cooperate or not. And that was what I said to Ailes and his team. I said, this book's happening. I want I want you to participate. I want your point of view. Um, but I'm not willing to make, they tried to make all kinds of deals with me. Well, you can't quote this person or, you know, you need to do this and then we'll do an interview. I said, well, no, I'm not going to like make preconditions on my reporting based on on whether you might give me an interview. And so that just got thrown out the window and I set out uh, and I kept hoping he was going to cooperate. I would send him letters. I would talk to his advisors. But by the end, I realized that there was you know, no hope because he was so paranoid and sort of tied up in knots about the book. But the last thing I'll say is, in a lot of ways, I felt the book benefited by not having Ailes have any kind of control over it. Because one of the things he's such a genius at is spinning and fabricating narratives that, if you watch Fox, don't necessarily have a lot to do with reality. Yeah. And and he's done that with reporters through the years. And I did not want to be uh, have allow him to kind of shape. I wanted to be in control of the story, not him. Yeah. Well, then a crazy thing happened, which I was reading. It's either in the source notes of the book, but I was reading about elsewhere that while your book was going on, he like arranged for a, an authorized biography to happen basically yeah. to try and either counterbalance or do you feel like it was to beat yours out and try yeah, to get so rid this of it? Is, this is to, your, to the, the point about him trying to control the narrative. About a year into my reporting, when it became very clear that I wasn't going to stop and my book was happening, he quickly um, commissioned a, a fake authorized biography that my sources said he actually had control over the copy and edited it himself. I've even heard he paid the writer under the table to do it in addition to his book advance. Um, and so he, he basically rushed this book out into bookstores as a way of preempting mine. And when I first heard that he was doing this, I... I sort of freaked out because I said, oh, well, you know, what if this is an amazing book and it comes out a year before mine? But then I realized that, well, it can't be. I mean, he's not. The whole point of this is PR, not journalism. And so it, the book itself is a total whitewashed account of his life. And obviously, none of the allegations we're learning about over the last few weeks, you know, are involved in that book at all. <laughs> right. It would be very surprising yeah. to go back to yeah. that book. And yeah. be like, oh, actually, it's all here. It's all here. <laughs> um, well, how did you... So let's talk about how you tackled this problem of not having his cooperation. And I assume, I mean, from reading the book and from now seeing more about him that you're reporting on, 
you know, he's paranoid. He's also controlled Fox. Like people answered to him and and were loyal to him. Can you describe sort of your process for getting in to talk to people, getting people to give you anything? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. Um, and it's funny, as a reporter, I don't often think about the craft of reporting. It's just, you know, it's my job. But I, I've thought about actually how, how I did the book as a way of um, sort of in the future how I would approach reporting challenges. So I'd say two things. Um, so I thought about the world of Fox News and Roger Ailes as uh, sort of concentric circles. Uh, so when I started the reporting for the book, I sort of focused on the outermost circle former employees, longtime friends of his, people who don't have day-to-day connections with the network. Mm -hmm. And I focused my reporting on those people, and especially his childhood. I took a reporting trip to Ohio. I got documents um, from his parents' divorce records, people who've known long in the past. And then with that base of knowledge, I started to move in the circle, people who worked with him, you know, in the 70s and the 80s. And then... um, and by the time I was really doing a lot of my focusing on the recent years at Fox, I had such a base of knowledge about him, and I was so uh, authoritative on on Ailes, I could speak with sources on a level where they would trust me, that I wasn't just parachuting into a story. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, one, that was one approach. The other thing is I really appealed to people who worked with Ailes, because it's true, even though he's paranoid and, you know, been, I think, a divisive influence on, on America. He is a genius. And people who've worked with him, you know, they sort of feel that they saw something. They had a front row seat to this American icon that they wanted to document that, you know, so much of the coverage of Fox is so partisan. No one really had set out to try to just document this as history. Uh-huh. And so that was my kind of high minded approach to subjects like I'm just trying to understand this. And so we have a record of it. And I was actually surprised that sources who wanted they you know, once they got over the fear of talking, they actually wanted to share stories about working with Ailes because he is such a sweet, generous figure and he's so fascinating that that got people to open up. Mm-hmm. And his brother, did his brother talk to you? Yeah, his uh, his brother, Robert Ailes, talked to me at length multiple times in long phone interviews. Uh, and I was very surprised that um, I think I first reached out to him when I was in Ohio on a reporting trip. He lives down in Florida. He's a doctor. And I was expecting him just to, you know, hang up the phone. And we uh, we struck up a rapport. And uh, we had several, I followed up after that, we had several long phone interviews. And uh, he illuminated a lot of what I had learned in the divorce records that of Ailes' parents, who his dad was a very, according to the rec- uh, documents, very of sort of violent, sadistic guy. And Robert confirmed all of this about their childhood being this very, uh, his father just would fly into a rage. And so I think, again, he wanted to, I think, talk to a writer who was trying to, you know, show his his brother as a kind of a world historical figure. Yeah, I guess documenting, almost documenting the family. Yeah, as, exactly. As being yeah. And important brother, in American history. Yeah, and his brother um, was kind of the family genealogist. I mean, he's a really, uh, really thoughtful person. And he had sort of put together an unpublished family uh, history slash autobiography. So he was such a great resource because he had, we trace in the book, I trace Ailes's, uh family all the way back to when they came uh, to the States in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. So his brother really helped me with the genealogy. How'd you learn how to do this kind of reporting? Like I just, I by totally coincidentally, I had uh, breakfast with someone who 
uh, was a very small part of a story you did years ago, and I won't say who it is, but he, I mentioned that I was talking to you, and he said, oh, yeah, I was in a, he reported a story, and I was in it a little bit. He's a killer. Mm -hmm. He's a killer, man. But he meant it in the most, he's a reporter, so he meant it in the most complimentary possible way. But I'm curious where your reporting skills developed. Well, it's funny, just before this, we were talking about the New York Observer, and that it kind of all goes back to that, because my mentor was uh, Peter Kaplan, the Mm. late editor of the paper, who I showed up there when I was, I think, 22 or 23 years old. And, you know, he just throws you into it. I didn't go to journalism school, so I, you know, learned by doing. And I think my first full-time job was writing the weekly real estate column, where um, you try to, you know, report and find out the biggest sale of the week and you're competing against the New York Post and the New York Times. And and so I just got obsessed with wanting to break the biggest apartment sale of the week, which I knew nothing about real estate. I, you know, I was living, I think, with a f- college friend in like a shitty apartment. So like it was hilarious that I was like writing about $20 million deals. But both the pressure of having to produce a scoop every week and the discipline of having to just pick up the phone and cold call real estate brokers. Like, it was basically like telemarketing. Uh-huh. And I'm like, in my personal life, I'm a total introvert. Like, my wife and I, if we go to a cocktail party, like, I'm just like <laughs> sitting by the wall. Like, I don't schmooze and mingle. But there, when I work, when, when I'm reporting, I'll just call or talk to anybody because it's work. And so I, I got over my fear of talking to people. And, you know, I would make 20 phone calls a day if I had to to get. Or you hear a tip and then you call five people and they hang up on you. And then you, you know, so like it's just that discipline, I think, of um, that's where I learned to do that kind of work that paid off with the Ailes book. Do you do you retain your interest in the the biggest apartment sale of the? Well, now it's just voyeurism. And I just like I read the Times real estate section. I just get pissed off that I'll never. (laughs) I'm old enough now where I know my lot in life and I'm just never going to get there. So I imagine you calling on weekends. Just I'm still trying to get. I just like to know it. I know like (laughs) the biggest one is just. It's just part of what I do. Um, so Peter Kaplan, The Observer, and then did you go from there to New York? Magazine? No, so I did a brief. Um, my transition to magazine writing is I joined the uh, short-lived business magazine portfolio. Oh, yeah, portfolio. Um, and so I was there for about a year or so. But that was my first job where I, I wrote a handful of three or 4,000 word pieces. Because The Observer, none of my stories were longer than, say, 1,500 words or so. So that was a big learning uh, experience for me because I learned how to take the reporting I did, but then tell a story. Because mm-hmm. I was, you know, I remember my first draft of a magazine feature I did. I think my sent- my paragraphs are like three sentences long. They were just like clipped and totally clueless about how to write a magazine story. So, and then from there, I ended, ended up in New York. And it always strikes me as a interesting thing covering the media, uh, you're inherently covering the thing that you are of. And did you have an interest? Did you gravitate towards that because it was something that you think is an interesting subject matter or that you thought you were really good at? No, I gravitated towards it because when I was at The Observer, the really the best beats were either media or politics. And there was an opening on the media beat. I had been doing real estate for over a year or so. And then there was an opening on the media beat. And so I, I applied for, I told Peter I wanted that job. And and just from there, I, I developed an interest of it. And then since then, I think I've continued to cover it because I live in New York City. And I've always said, you know, if you live in a place, you want to write about the thing that is in that place. So if you live in L.A. and you're a journalist, you probably want to write about Hollywood or if you're in San Francisco tech. Well, so in you know New York, it's either finance, media, I guess, fashion or 
you know, or politics. And so like, you know, media is just our backyard. So that's just why as a beat, I think it's it's fun to cover because it's so central to how the city works. When you cover this stuff, do you feel like, I don't know the right way to say this, this is going to sound stupid the way I'm going to say it, but powerful is the word I was going to use, but like that you can affect what happens in the media through your reporting that you can, I mean, we'll get back to Ailes in a second where there's a sort of specific application of that, but like reporting on Gawker, reporting on, you know, do you feel like people are wary of you because you hold power over their jobs in some way? I, I guess I don't think of it in those sort of specific terms because I actually don't think of media as any different than any other. Like I've covered for New York Magazine. I've written big pieces about Wall Street. Right. My first cover story was um, about the Horace Mann School when they were going through a big uh, scandal with their board of directors. So I just think of media as an institution. And uh, I sort of apply that lens of how, just trying to explain how a powerful institution works and just happens to be either, you know, in Fox's case, a, a news network uh, or the New York Times as a newspaper. But I would report on it the same way as I was reporting on, say, like Goldman Sachs. It's just, yeah. they're, you know, because in a certain way, the difference is banks and other big companies are opaque because that's what corporations are. You know, media is supposed to be transparent, but as we all know, media companies are no different than any other company. Non-transparent yeah. and probably more thin-skinned. Yeah, and, uh, and the people who other. work there actually know how journalism works, so they're, you know, they can be more manipulative. Hey, Aaron, let's put these guys on hold for a second and uh, tell the listeners a little bit about our friends at Audible. Well, the first thing I'd point out is they have over 250,000 thousand audiobook titles that is more than anyone in the universe they also uh got more than just book titles they've got podcasts now they're making original podcasts and they're good yeah like they've got one about the u.s presidents that i've been enjoying that one yeah and another thing i've been enjoying is listening to the people who've been on this show like i've already heard their voice now i want to hear their writing read aloud cheryl strayed Malcolm Gladwell. I believe they've got uh, Gabriel Sherman, um, the book about Roger Ailes. Yeah, if you haven't read it yet, about. you can go uh, listen to it. You don't even have to read it. Uh, so if I wanted to sign up for Audible, how would I do it? You would go to audible.com slash longform. That's audible.com slash longform. And if you did that, you would get a 30-day free trial and a free book of your choice. And you'd be supporting the show. Thank you, Audible. Here is Evan back with Gabriel Sherman. This is a, a crazy moment because things that you've covered are sort of like all, not just the Ailes thing, but you did a profile of Jared Kushner. Mm -hmm. uh, even He wasn't even married to Ivanka Trump at the time. They got engaged, I think, like a week or two after my, my story ran, which at, when you asked about affecting things, I have no idea if it was timed, but it's <laughs> coincidence. But that's obviously uh, now landing in this huge well, way. Well, and Trump, right? Like, so and Trump my, himself. Yeah, like when I was on the real estate beat, you know, I'd, Trump was great because I was like 23 and clueless and he would get on the phone with me like <laughs> and you're 23 years old and you're like, hey, mom, dad, like Donald Trump just did an interview with me. And like now the guy is doing the same thing, but he's running for president. Like it's that this whole last year has been, yeah, kind of surreal because I did a cover, a Trump cover story for New York and Jared was a character in that story and Ailes was a character. It's just like everything is coming together. Yeah. Or even in a, in a different way, you profiled A.J. Delario. Yeah. And then that. All, oh, yeah. That, for, you know, when he was yeah. just a dead spin. Yeah. And yeah. then the Gawker thing all blew up. I feel like you've planted, you've 
you've seen the future and yeah. planted little uh, media minds that are now blowing up somehow or something. Back to the Ailes book. How long did you work on that book for? Uh, it was like three years start to finish. So there's a note in the the source notes that says you talked to over 600 people, mm-hmm. um, which I was like, oh, that's a lot of people, but it's a book. You probably worked on a long time. And then I looked at this Roger Goodell uh, profile that you did for GQ, mm-hmm. and in it, it says you talked to over 100 people mm-hmm. just for a magazine profile, which is, I think, a lot. Yeah, that was... Oh, so the Goodell piece was similar to the Ailes. It's, the NFL and Fox actually are very similar in how they are set up uh, in that they're very wary of outsiders. It's paranoid. It's powerful. They, they expect to run the world, so they don't like when reporters ask questions. But um, yeah, with the Goodell piece, same thing. Like I got very little access, and I had to tell the story. And so the only way to do that was just to completely surround it and just talk to everyone I could. And I think um, that also sort of really drove uh, the news cycle because my story was the first to report that him and Patriots owner Robert Kraft were like this. Yeah, yeah. And there's a quote in my story uh, and I should preface all this to say, like, I am not a football fan at all. I mean, I'll watch it, but I come, I came to that story, like, just as a journalist, not as someone who... Just went, in, in the institution of yeah, the NFL. Yeah, like, I, I'm not, I wasn't partisan to any of the teams. And I quoted one of the NFL executives saying that the nickname for Kraft in the league is the assistant commissioner. And then when Deflategate happened... One of the players, uh, I think it was for the Seahawks, used that quote. He said, oh, you know, Bob Kraft is the assistant commissioner. It just went totally viral. And so it was just, it was, you know, as an outsider, fascinating to see that this, like, magazine story was then becoming, like, the central narrative of the Super Bowl. Did you get, like, blowback from people thinking that you were partisan, like, no, against I, No, but it was funny because I got invited to go on, like, sports talk radio and, and sport. And I just, you know, I'm not, a, I like sports, but I'm not, I'm not, like, a super fan, so... <laughs> Um, when so the thing I was going to ask before is when you're doing something like writing this book about Ailes, Ailes won't talk to you. You're spending three years on it. That person looms so large in your life, like is arguably like an obsession of yours. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, like how does that feel to have someone who is that kind of presence in your life that you also don't talk to? Yeah, yeah, it's a good. I think obsession's a it's a good word. I mean. The reason I knew it was a book is that every day I woke up as interested, if not more so, in the subject than the day before. Hmm. And he's just so fascinating as a human being and as a part of the American scene. You know, if you look at his life, you know, he worked for Nixon in 68, you know, running his television campaign and basically giving him a a makeover for television. He ran George H.W. Bush's campaign in 88. A lot of people think that his style of politics is what gave us the Willie Horton ad. You know, he created Fox. I mean, he's one of these people that has fundamentally changed America, and yet he's never really been studied before and written about before in that kind of way. And so I felt like I was, part of the obsession was that I felt like I was off on, you know, in unexplored terrain. Mm. And I was in this story that felt so uniquely my own. And I felt like almost... I didn't need to sit down with him because he has so little capacity for self-reflection. I mean, his job, he's made a, hundreds of millions of dollars basically spinning. And so when you sit down with a subject, you want them to really engage with you. He never would. I doubt he would ever really engage with a writer in that way. So having him kind of at that distance allowed me just to kind of see him for who he was. Now, in the book, there are at least two, I think, incidents that are similar to 
the instance that have come out in this Gretchen Carlson lawsuit and mm -hmm. subsequent, like there's definitely like a woman who comes in for a job and there is a there's a like clear like yeah. sexual favors type offer. Mm -hmm. And that's in your book. Like that's that's out. And were you surprised that that didn't get picked up or go anywhere or did it get picked up by people at the time? It got picked up a little bit. Um, she's a very brave woman. Her name is Randy Harrison. She lives in the East Village. And she had worked at NBC in the 80s as a young producer. And ALCS, as I reported, propositioned her. He said I'd give her, he would give her a raise in exchange for sex. Right. And uh, I was I was really, you know, Random House, my publisher and myself, like this is, you know, that was explosive to be able to, to say that. And I remember thinking like, this is gonna really shake things up. And when the book came out, it did, you know, it got picked up on, on a few blogs, but then it kind of went away. And so, yeah, when this whole thing exploded, I wasn't surprised because, and I there was many other examples that weren't in the book, just for various reasons that, you know, whether the person wouldn't go on the record or whatever. But I knew this whole pattern existed, going yeah. all the way back to the 1960s. So it wasn't surprising at all. And it seems like, I mean, in a way, it's sort of like a microcosm of what happens in many workplaces. Like something gets swept under the rug. Yeah. But it also, I mean, it seems doubly insane that it could appear in a book published by Random House that's like on the bestseller list yeah. that this person engages in this behavior and like you would hear nothing from their employer or there would be no seeming consequences yeah. of that. Yeah, well that's, you know, that's the Murdoch way is, as we saw in, in London with the phone hacking and we're seeing to some degree here, his whole MO is like, don't ask questions and only fire someone or push them out if it becomes a major scandal. So one little, you know, a book coming out is not going to cause Rupert Murdoch to be, okay, Roger Ailes is, this isn't the values I want for my company. And so after it came out and you did the publicity around it, and did you at that point think, okay, I will now have a, a you know, another 10 years of covering Roger Ailes as the Fox News person, you know, that you would, you would keep covering him. And did, was there any sense that there was something unstable underneath uh, waiting to erupt? Um, yes and no. So, when my book uh, was published uh, in 2014, coincided with like his first of his major health setbacks. So he's taken extended leaves uh, of absence from Fox over the last couple of years um, with various back surgery. And he has, as I write in the book, he's a hemophiliac. And a, a side effect of hemophilia is that it ravages your joints because your blood, when you, you get bruises in your joints and then you get arthritis. So he's had a lot of surgeries through the years and I knew that his health was really bad. So I was thinking, oh, well, maybe he's just going to have to step down. And I always thought the thing that was going to bring him down was not sex. It was somehow, you know, we would really finally learn about how he was scripting talking points for, you know, Republicans. Mm -hmm. Or you know, I thought it was going to be something political that was going to bring him down, not sex. But actually, it makes sense. The reason why he's being brought down by this is this isn't about partisan politics. This is about sort of human decency. And even if Republicans are kind of outraged by when they're reading this. And when the, so you mentioned the Carlson lawsuit, was that something you were aware of before that came out? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I knew that she was, I didn't know about the sexual harassment with her specifically. I knew that she was on the outs with Ailes, but the actual filing of the suit was a surprise. And I, I was in France, uh, over the 4th of July on vacation and, uh, we landed at JFK on July 6th, 
uh, it was a Wednesday, I believe. And I remember turning on my phone when I got off the plane and just started lighting up with text messages because she had filed the lawsuit like a few hours before. Uh. And so from like that day, and I was totally jet lagged from the that day on, I was just, you know, reporting the story around the clock. But uh, I'm so glad it was like that day and not the first day of my vacation because I would have like been freaking out, have to like leave France to come back. And I don't do this kind of beat reporting. So I'm, I am curious, even after the book came out, in, at what level are you ambiently engaged with, obviously now you're reporting, yeah. you're, you're really reporting all the time, but previous to that, you know, checking in with people from Fox News once in a while, like what's your sort of like daily routine with that stuff like? That's a good question. I, um, after the book kind of wound, the, the book wound down, I moved on to other pieces. So I wasn't fully engaged, but as the 2016 presidential race ramped up, I sort of re-engaged because, you know, Fox is so intertwined with the Republican Party that I sort of wanted to, you know, reconnect with those sources. And you don't ever fully disengage. I mean, you know, I spent three years in this world. So I, you know, these are people I am now just sort of corresponding with regularly. But uh, it definitely picked up starting in 2015. I took a year kind of away from the book. Uh And it seemed like as the Trump phenomenon sort of gained steam, it was a weird thing for Fox. I mean, I'm a, uh, I'm a listener to right-wing talk radio. It's like a weird uh, habit that Who's I have. Who's your go-to, Rush? Or? Well, I used to love the kind of like B and C level yeah. ones, like the Laura Ingrams of the world. Yeah. Um, but now I'll listen to Rush and Sean Hannity okay. sometimes. Well, yeah, they're fully on it. Because like Mark Levin is totally not on the Yeah, he's train. against yeah. and Beck, yeah. uh, Beck was against. Yeah. But, but Limbaugh kind of like, he was treading a lot. He was like, Cruise a little bit, yeah, yeah. and then and then he kind of tipped over and hit, and he's just uh, uh, it's like of, part of the Trump campaign, at yeah, this point. But, yeah. <laughs> basically. But uh, when I was reading your book, there's a crazy line in there where someone says, uh, "This guy Podell recognized quote a lot of latent Donald Trump in Roger Ailes." Mm-hmm. Like, there's this kind of like they're sort of similar figures oh, yeah. in some way, and again, it seemed like. Uh, a crazy moment for these things to be coming together and having to interact. Yeah, a friend of mine jokes that there's like this uh, strand of Republican guys. We joke that they're like the Reyes caucus because it's like Rush Limbaugh, Roger Ailes, Rudy Giuliani, you know, like I guess Bo Diddle, Diddle is private eye. These guys that are like kind of New York media guy. I mean, Rush is in Florida, but like they're these like tough guys, but they're Republicans. And like <laughs> Trump is one of them too. And uh, it is Trump and Ailes go way back. They talk all the time. Uh, Ailes is advising him on the campaign. There's like so many speeches I've heard Trump give where I'll get an email from a Fox guy and he'll be like, well, you know, those clearly was Rogers talking points. So, yeah, when Trump probably started gaining steam, one of the reasons I took Trump seriously is because I could see that he was tapping that same style of politics that had built Fox into su- and, and also talk radio into such a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so then after this lawsuit against Ailes broke, then you you did a number of stories about other people who were now coming forward or on yeah. the verge of coming forward with their own sexual harassment accusations against him. And were those people that came to you because they knew you were on this or did you already have people that you sort of thought... I should get in touch with this person. So they, uh, so the first round of stories, like right after the lawsuit, they had um, some of those women had reached out to Gretchen Carlson's lawyer, uh-huh. uh, and the lawyer I had been in touch with because I was covering the suit, because I had covered this in my book and I was not new to the subject. She steered the women to me, 
And so then I interviewed those women and then I was put in touch with other women. And then since then, I've, I've had more women contact me and I've interviewed more than 20 women, uh, many of them on the record, who have told accounts of being sexually harassed by ales. And I'm just like one reporter. So that means there must be, you know, well over 100 out there or more. And so when people, I've seen people, you know, have headlines that say like Ailes is the Cosby of media, it doesn't surprise me that there is at least 100 to 200 women out there who have been sexually harassed by him. That is insane. Which is, it, it's insane. But then the other thing I really wrestle with is this guy has been famous, powerful, in the public eye for 30, 40 years, and yet none of this stuff really came out. Like these women were living with this kind of secret while this guy was affecting world affairs, you would think that he was so public, wouldn't some woman come forward? But because this culture of fear that he wields, I go back and forth. I mean, sometimes it's, I think, well, I'm surprised that women didn't come forward earlier. But then other times I think, well, he's, you know, what, what's in it for them? There's no upside. They don't want to, you know, it's, it's terrifying to come forward. So. Yeah. And he wasn't, uh, he wasn't just a sort of powerful person, it seems like he explicitly threatened people, threatened their careers, oh, yeah. said, you yeah. will regret this if you ever... Well, and the really the really chilling uh, example of that is um, the story of Lori Loon, which I wrote for uh, New York Magazine, who was in this kind of psychological, tormented relationship with him for 20 years. And he, in their first sexual encounter, when he brought her to a hotel room, he videotaped her. And when she asked what he was going to do with it, he said, I'm putting it into a safety deposit box just so we understand each other. So that was explicitly blackmail, that if she ever said something, he would like presumably leak this, this video. I mean, that's a sick, sadistic thing to do. But that's what he would do to women when he would say, if you ever say anything about this, I'll, I'll, I'll get you. And how are you managing these like reporting relationships with people who are putting their lives on the line to, in some cases, on the record yeah. by name, come out? And talk about this. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't write about. Um, this is really actually the first experience in my journalism career where I've written about real sort of victims. A lot of the stuff I've written about is business, politics, media, and so there's. You know, these are all you know powerful people. This is the real story where I'm writing about people that have been taken advantage of by a powerful person. And I remember it really hit me when I was flying home from the uh, Republican convention. I was flying home from Cleveland, and I was like going on no sleep, and I had, I had written a series of stories about women who had come forward. And I remember it's like collapsing into the airplane seat, and I remember just like tears were just like streaming down my face. I was like both out of exhaustion, but just it finally hit me about these women who had, it had taken so much courage to break their silence. These women were saying like, I have to say something, but I don't know what's going to happen to me. And that was, uh, that was the moment where I really, it hit me that uh, this was... This was real life. This wasn't just a story. These were people who were taking kind of a, a big risk by speaking out. And some of them had signed settlement agreements and yeah. things like that. that... Yeah, they, they could have. I had, I had one woman, this was a really chilling anecdote, where she told me she was going to talk to me, but she had to transfer all of her assets to her mother's bank account. So she literally went to the bank, moved all of her money to her mother's savings account. And only then would she talk to me because if Fox sued her, you know, she wouldn't have the money. You know, it would be in her mom's name. And so... It's like when people talk about that kind of stuff, you realize like, shit, like they're putting a lot of faith in you. And I, I don't want to be responsible for, you know, them being, but they're making that decision and you have to honor their decision to speak up, but it's a lot, it weighs on you. Yeah. 
And other people had to know. Like, Ailes has gotten forced out, right? But I assume this is the reporting you're doing yeah. now. Yeah, but I, it I, seemed from a logical, uh, unreported perspective, yeah. there's no fucking way that people didn't know yeah. that this was happening. Yeah, so that's been a, a line of reporting I've been really pursuing over the last week or so, which is to try to really show that this was a culture that people knew about and more so enabled because it's one thing to know, it's another thing to help make it happen. And uh, and I reported in that story about Lori Loon, the, the booker who had 20 years of harassment. Diane Brandy, the Fox News' general counsel, signed, and I viewed the document, she signed a $3 million settlement with her. And she went to Ailes and said, well, what's this allegation? He denied it and said, settle. Well, if you... You know, if you work at a company and some employee comes to you and says, I've been harassed by the CEO for 20 years and you just take his word. I mean, that should have launched a major HR investigation, like outside lawyers, like nothing happened. Like they just signed three million dollar check and she went away. So that's an example where, you know, the lawyer, the head lawyer of Fox News knew about this in at least one instance and did nothing. Yeah. And on. There's also been a as a like follower of Fox News and talk radio, there was like a wave of all these people who work for the network coming out and defending Ailes and then suddenly then nothing. Yeah. You know, there was like this uh, PR campaign that he waged in the days after Carlson's lawsuit where he rallied, uh, especially female employees to defend him. And not one of them, except Greta Van Susteren, has slowly walked back some of the things she said has come forward. I mean, to me that if you're going to own those words, you should now come out and either defend them or, or disown them. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me was that the, I can't remember the woman's name, but the one who's still at Fox, but has kind of been sidelined, but just, you just reported that. Andrea Tantero. Yeah. She, in your like kind of, not epilogue, but a note on sources in your, in your book, you talk about, she was one of the people that came out and criticized your like reporting of the book. Yeah. And I believed used the word harasser. Harasser. Yeah. Well, and Al said that to me, that was language he used too. I remember I, I saw him at a, party at the Four Seasons, uh, and I went up to him to, to interview him at a public event, and he called me a harasser. And I think that word, reflecting on it, my wife and I were talking about this, it's so interesting because it's almost a form of projection. I mean, why would you call a, a reporter, you could say you're a pest or you're a pain in the ass, get out of my way, but he said, like, you're a harasser. And I I think now it's probably because he, you know, he knew deep down that he is a harasser, and he was just like projecting that. Well, yeah. And also, I mean, it puts in a different light. It's one thing for him to be private and paranoid and not want you to report the book. Yeah. But it's another thing to then realize that there were a hundred people's worth of secrets that were just lying in wait. And you found some of them. But that's I mean, he had that to. Yeah. And that's why he uh, around the time I started working on the book, he created uh, what was called the Black Room at Fox, which was this basically this intelligence office that he had people um, smearing my reputation online. He had private investigators following me. It it was basically this dirty tricks operation that he set up um, because of my book. And now it all makes sense. Like you would only go to those lengths to be so paranoid if you really had secrets that you didn't want the world to know about. Did you perceive being followed at the time? So I never did. But so my wife and I moved to Vermont for... um, the summer of 2012 to work to write. I was writing the book and she was uh, editing the manuscript and she saw a black SUV parked on the dirt road, like right next to the house we were staying at. 
And, it, you know, we are in the middle of Vermont. Like, there's no reason for a black suburban to be up there. So that was the closest we came to actually seeing PIs. <laughs> that seems both uh, sounds like it was probably them yeah. and also, like, what a goofball operation. Yeah. Like, why couldn't they get a, just get, like, a more beat-up rental car yeah. well, that would stand out so much? Well, we also joked about is, like, I, like, the most boring dude. Like, we would, like, work cook dinner and watch Breaking Bad. Like, so I pitied these like private eyes who like, there's no strip clubs or like coke habits or gambling debts. Like there's nothing that they would latch on to. Do you think you could get the file? Like it would be I would love to my dossier. File. I know. It's like, maybe it's like, it'll be like, um, you know, the Stasi files eventually will all just come out. <laughs> and there was also some gawker people, John Cook. Yeah. So Nolan yeah, he would do this. Followed. Yeah. Not only to me, but yeah, he would, uh, he would have PIs, you know, tail, try to dig up dirt on, on journalists. Uh, yeah, and Cook and uh, Hamilton at Gawker. That's just, and this was paid for by Fox money. That's what, to me, again, it's to your question about who else knew. That's where it it moves out of the realm of kind of being, you know, eccentric and paranoid to being kind of an abuse of corporate power. I mean, he's using company shareholder resources to wage a personal dirty tricks campaign against people he doesn't like. and um, In but, like rural Vermont. Yeah, and, and that is... Uh, but that was the culture of Fox, that he could run the company as almost like a mom and pop shop, even though it's part of a global conglomerate. And you mentioned uh, also organizing people to to sort of smear your name or, you know, put out things about you online. Is that something because you report on Fox that you experience on a regular basis? Like, are, do you feel like you're in a maelstrom of sort of like the craziness that has now accompanied the election, Trump yeah. supporters, like all that yeah, stuff? Yeah, it's... It's definitely died down. There was a period more before the book came out uh, where I was turned into a target. Like uh, there was websites that called me a, a Soros puppet. Ailes was pushing this conspiracy theory that George Soros was paying me to write the book. I mean, I've never met Soros in my life. If he was paying me, I got a really bad deal because like I, we live up in Queens. Like I clearly didn't de- like demand a bigger <laughs> deal from him. Um, but the... Uh, no, so there was a time where like we got death threat at home, like some crank called and you know said we're going to come after you, you're coming after the right, we're going to get you. Like that was scary because again, like it's not just like you don't know if it's just a crank. Like you when you have like right-wing websites that are turning you into a target, you know, it's one thing if they do it with like a politician, they have like, you know, security or handlers. Like I don't have any of that. So So did you do anything? I did look into um getting our apartment swept uh, for bugs because I had heard rumors that he was like tapping my phone. and But it, it would have cost, I think the estimate we got was like $10,000 to have my home office swept. I, I, mean, I don't have that. So we never did. But like that's the mentality. When you're in this paranoid bubble, you think anything is possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, it turns out that was entirely yeah. possible. Yeah. It wasn't paranoid. It was real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh... So now, do you feel like you're on some kind of 24-7 beat with this, or what What, what happens next? Yeah, so um, I want to ride out the story uh, some more, because I think the questions that I want to be fully answered are who else knew about this, and, and also the, you know, were any corporate rules broken? Um, and then also what happens next, right? Because yeah. Fox has been, you know, been such a driving force on the right for 20 years. And now with James and Lachlan Murdoch moving into positions, leadership positions at 21st Century Fox, the parent company, their politics are very different than than their father's. So what is the post-Ales Fox? That's a good story. 
but then I, I and of course yes I, I'm I would like to move on I want to my my agent's been after me to come up with another book idea so I I do in theory want to move on <laughs> I mean it's hard to move on when this much is happening and a lot of it yeah is like right important. now yeah yeah in the middle of the election yeah. also how does it work at New York Magazine for you do you set your own kind of agenda in terms of, you know, you write for the web, you write for the magazine, like how does that all that get organized? Yeah. So New York's great. I've, it's really been, uh, my home journalistic home for seven, eight years now. What I love about it is Adam has, everyone talks about, you know, print and digital, but he's figured out how to, Adam Moss, the editor of the magazine, how to use the website to kind of amplify the print magazine and vice versa. So I'll, uh, I'll oftentimes do a whole body of reporting for the website that will then grow into a print feature. So, you know, that may happen in the Ailes case. I'm not sure. Um, but, I'm, you know, I've been doing a mix. Um, my last cover story was uh, on the Trump campaign. I traveled with them. So, you know, it's great. You can write 6,000 words in print or you can break news on the web. It, you can sort of play in different uh, fields. And did Trump remember you from your, your like early reporting? I don't think so. Um, I, I, I doubt it. But he, uh, you know, when I brought up the Observer, I mean, he, you know, he at least, you know, he knows the paper. I mean, of course, with Jared, who, he, who like, owns it. Yeah. So sort of, yeah, as a connection to uh, dictating what it says, yeah. almost, you could say. Um, and are you... When you say you're you're looking to do the next thing, do you have interest in in moving away from like business and media? Like, do you feel like you get satiated when it comes to that, or that you there's more there's more you'd like to do with it? Well, I think the the lens that I look at a story, I think it first has to be about the person or the subject. So, like Fox was this mysterious, opaque kind of quasi cult that you know no one really knew how it worked. So that was the interest for me, and then. You know, my next story, whether it's, I think it has to be something where I just, and inherently, I have that obsession about what it is. So I don't know. It doesn't have to be business or media. I think it has to either be a world that I want to try to get into or a person I want to understand. Uh-huh. Yeah. We mostly talk journalism and process on the show. We rarely just talk political opinions, yeah. but because you have such a deep knowledge of both this media uh, institution, particular Fox, but the way, the way the media has gone in general and politics. What do you think is going to happen? I'm not asking like who's going to win the election, but I mean, it feels like we're at a place where we can't go back to the way things were before. That the, that we've this is a watershed moment. Both like what's happening with Fox, yeah, something's got to change, and like just Trump's campaign, whether he wins or loses, like we can't go back to the pre like 2014 era. Yeah, I think there's some there's definitely something to that. I think the for the last 20 years, sort of ails. Ailes's power was such that he sort of took over the Republican Party. And what's so interesting is that since 2008, the Republicans have lost every presidential election. So um, so while Republicans sort of bowed down to him and to his agenda, kind of his paranoid right wing agenda, it didn't win them elections. And now if Trump, if you look at the poll numbers, it looks like he's going down in flames. If they lose again, and now with Ailes being deposed from Fox, like you could really imagine Republicans saying, listen, we've tried this now three or four times. It hasn't worked, and we are going to reconstitute ourselves as a different... I think there could really be a, diminu- like a diminution of the power of right-wing media and talk radio, because you see the party elites like Paul Ryan, they're sick of like 
kowing to people that they know are never going to appeal to the middle of this country. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the finally, I could be completely wrong, but I, I could just imagine a scenario where the sort of moderate Republicans formally split off from this kind of angry populist base. Uh, and I don't know if that means like formally the party splits or that they just, you know, are refusing to like, you know, so many Republicans just would go on Fox and participate in things that they in private would know are ridiculous. Like the show Fox and Friends. I remember in the 2012 election, Mitt Romney gave, uh, I wouldn't get it wrong, but he gave, you know, dozens of interviews to Fox and Friends. You know, and Mitt Romney, whatever you think about his politics, like he's a thoughtful guy. And yet he's having to kind of uh, lower himself to to being on that morning show. And I think now I could see Republicans saying, listen, this is not Fox News is not going to help us win elections. Yeah, it's like I mean, that's why I'm fascinated by listening to to talk radio is that having listened to Hannity and Limbaugh and those type of people for decades, like what Trump is saying is just distilled from that, which is an entertainment product. And it's being distilled into like a political campaign. Yeah. It's an entertainment product that you may hate and is disgusting in its own ways, but it's not it wasn't it was never intended to actually be a political platform of yeah. any type. And there's no like actual policy there's nothing prescription. There. Yeah, exactly. And so if if again if he goes down in flames, I could see I could see the party saying we can't let the entertainment wing of our party dictate how we how we run campaigns. And do you think? I mean, uh, it was interesting reading the book, and and you you're talking about the origins of Fox News and the origins of the slogan of fair and balanced, mm-hmm. and all the things that were said around that when it launched. Mm-hmm. And Jim Rutenberg wrote this column the other day about the way reporters approach Trump. Uh, I think it was him in the Times, yeah. and how objective can you be in this type of scenario? And do you think your politics? Like you don't show up in a huge way in most of your stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might there might be a little like he told me, yeah. she told me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. How, what role do you think your own personal politics play in this type of reporting that you've done? Well, I guess I mean it's impossible to devoid your politics from your writing because it's that's I think it's disingenuous. But I think what I try to do is I try to ask the same questions of a subject, whether I'm writing about a Democrat or a Republican. It's the basics. You know, it's the journalism, who, what, where, when, why, like just to try to report. I was thinking about this after reading Jim's column, you know, this whole debate about, well, how do you describe Trump if you're a reporter? Is it biased if you call him a demagogue? And I actually don't think that's a productive conversation because it's actually more powerful if you're a reporter and you believe Trump is a demagogue, well, go report a story that shows it, you know, show his words or find out inside the campaign are there like memos that show him wanting to you know break constitutional rules i mean you can there are sort of ways you can show him being a demagogue as a reporter that doesn't get you into the realm of opinion and so i guess that's what i try to do with my politics is you know my interest in ales wasn't necessarily because he was right wing it's because he was powerful and so the same way if i was going to write about you know a, a liberal megalomaniacal media mogul. It would be the same. I would want to understand them in the same way. Ted Turner. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I've written about I've written about CNN. I've written about, you know, the Salzberger family. So, I mean, I feel like that's the way I try to approach it. And you know, I hope people can see that you know, I'm trying to play by the same rules. Breaking these kinds of stories and doing this kind of work is the kind of reason why a lot of people get into journalism. Is that why you got into journalism? Why did you get into journalism originally? That's a good question. There wasn't like a one reason. I mean, I think 
I yeah, I, I I've always loved writing and current events and re- and reading the paper, and I always just assumed like reporting was journalism. Um, maybe it's like the way you you know you grow up watching like all the presidents met like these you know Hollywood's idea of of reporting, and so yeah no I mean in many ways this was the Ailes story was kind of the ultimate story where you have where you have a subject that is so combative and paranoid, and it's so satisfying when you can still tell that story. And is there do you feel like there's still a chance that he could be following you and having all that sort of stuff done? Is there still that? I mean, I think anything's anything's possible, but uh, I think at least right now he's got you know bigger. Hopefully, luckily for me, I hope he has bigger problems than <laughs> worrying about me because you know he's facing these this lawsuit and uh, and potentially more lawsuits, and he was negotiating a severance. I mean, I hope this story is keeping him busy because I don't I don't want problems in my life. <laughs> well, it's incredible reporting. I'm gonna let you get back to it because I know you have a lot to do. Um, I really appreciate you coming by. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. Uh, Thanks to Gabe Sherman for coming in for this amidst his many uh, reporting calls. I imagine that he got back in the car and made like 20 calls on the way home and discovered 20 more things about Roger Ailes. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Uh, This episode was edited by Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them both. And as always, thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Audible, who make this podcast possible. We'll see you next week. Thank you.